All right, it's Friday. It's API storytelling time. Let me get uh, Aiden in here. What's up, Aiden? Hey, Ken. This is a great way to end the week. I needed this. You in the bunker? Is that where you're at today? In the in the bottom of an old bank. So okay, not actually not actually a bunker, but yeah. I see. All right, Mike coming in. Hey. All right, hi, gentlemen. Welcome. It is Friday. We get to tell stories and then head off to the weekend, right? Exactly. Exactly. Where I get my work done. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm ac I'm actually getting really good at weekends, like not working. That's great. Not, That's I mean, the last decade, I mean, you're still a hustler. Like, you know, I've got a cushy job and I'm just like, but you're that mad hustler still. So. You know, no, I'm 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 the person I'm the person who can't say no, even when it's in his own best interest. So that's that's why I'm working on the weekend. <laughs> yeah, but that's part of the hustling is you're always worried yeah. something might fall through. So you say yes to yeah. everything, and then everything happens, and you have to do it all. Mm -hmm. and yeah, it's yeah, yeah. And I don't learn. But you, but you got this you got this green screen though, so you can make clones of yourself, right? I mean, if you, ah, if you really need some help. That's right. That's what I really need to do. I need to get. I need to get that. Uh, what was that? That old '80s, '90s thing. Max Headroom. I need to. I need to get a couple of copies of me, <laughs> and just unleash them onto the public. Ah, seriously, that I sounds, doubt people want. That notice. sounds scary. I don't know if we if we want to do this. <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> so we went from from That's storytelling funny. to change to cloning. We are really this show. We go everywhere, don't we? That's right. Off the rails. Good to see you yeah. guys. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I think we're heading into summer here, so I think, I think uh, I don't know about you guys, but it's warm out here in the West. It's uh, pretty, pretty warm, and I mean, heading. You know, most of the weekends I'm either staying indoors in the shade or I'm heading out to some lake or river or something. But I think uh, what's on my mind is going to shift up. I think this summer, and I'm hoping in some good ways. So. Cool. Do you find do you find that you do a lot of good thinking out of nature? Is that one of your spots? Um, I would say I don't always do thinking. It I stop thinking, which is good for thinking. Like once I get back yep. to it, because then I'm yep. I'm in a better headspace. And so yeah, I do a lot of thinking when I'm first walking or hiking. I do a lot of hiking, and, and then. And then but once I get like halfway into it, I'm not thinking. I'm like, oh, rock. Uh, you know, I'm just like whatever's right around me. And uh, yeah. and then I get back and I'm in a much better state. So that's really the goal is to do that. At first, I was like, oh, I need to like carry a notebook of ideas. So on the trail, I can like think about that project and that project. I'm like, you're an idiot. Why the <laughs> hell would you want to do that? What's wrong with you? No, that's I, I find that as, as well. I. Uh... I go for a, a short walk almost every single day, and there there's a pace at which I can walk when I can think about something. If I want to like work through a puzzle, since I do a lot of writing, walking is a lot of times when I sort of figure out what I'm going to write about. But if I start walking a certain bit faster, I can no longer you know just let my mind idly operate. I need to pay attention to everything around me. So it's become a kind of a, a switch for me. If I want to be contemplating, then I walk at this slow pace and I notice stuff, but I'm really in my headspace. If I really want to get out of my headspace, kick it up, 
get walking, start mm. paying attention to what's around you, and it, and it just kind of recedes. So I, I do take advantage of both of those things, just like you said. Yeah. That's like interesting how you, yeah, like a throttle, like you have it, yeah. you know the calibration. You, you know, when I first heard somebody describe that was uh, Kahneman okay. from uh, yeah. Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. He talks about uh, that idea. He course analytical brain that he is he was wondering about like where your cognitive loads are and so on and so forth and he described that i think it might have been in the thinking fast and slow book but it might have been in another book. but yeah i use that i use that as a sort of a gauge or a throttle quite often yeah yeah that's super cool i so i used to use running as that kind of thing after like a long um, crazy day of work uh yeah. I, I ran in high school and college and i i love it it's always been this activity for me but i stopped getting better at being at, at running because I was using it as like a mental load taker offer kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, that was fine. It was, it served a good purpose. But when I started trying to get better at running again, it was really interesting. Cause like I had to not think about work to do it. Yep. And yep. when I got into that other headspace, it was a completely different experience. And then I <laughs> actually started to enjoy, enjoy both of them more because I wasn't using it as an escape anymore. I was like using it for its own reward. And that tiny little like change of intention made the entire experience of, of working and running different for me. So I'm always fascinated by even like those tiny little stories we tell ourselves, like, what is this for? How that can yeah. completely change the way it feels. Cool. I like that. Yeah. Do you, what, what's your biggest now, like is it to, to reduce kind of reduce the load in your world and reduce friction? Like what's, is it still running or do you have other coping mechanisms, Aiden? What else do you do? It's uh, so it's moved from running. Running is now its own activity that's as important as work. Um, so I have races I, I've booked and I'm trying to, to get better at that again. Wow. Stand up was wow. my other escape and I'm trying to get good at that too. So right now it's really just reading and going for long walks, those two things. Intentionally, like if my phone is near me, it, it doesn't work. Like the phone has to be like, away in another room or i need to go for the walk without it and um something about just being physically cut off from all the distractions feels really good very cool very cool you might um how do you yeah so like i said i use this this um this walking as a way to sort of clear my head or like tie loose ends up a little bit also uh, another thing that i do just to completely change things up is as aiden mentioned is I'm reading. So I'll, I'll sit and I'll, I'll read. I have two kinds of readings too, right? So I'm reading for research, which is work, doesn't count. But then I'm also reading just for pure enjoyment or for escapism. And I, like, like Aiden says, the phone's got to go to the side. I get a book and in, in the weather here in Kentucky, like these last few nights, I go out onto my, I have a small back deck. And I sit in a chair with a glass of water and uh, just listen to the cicadas. They're about gone now, but listen to the sounds around me. And then I just read a physical book. Often it's a, it needs to be a physical book, but it can be a, an ebook. And I'm rereading one that I read years ago. It's The Lost Worlds of 2001. It's the versions of Arthur C. Clarke's novel that Stanley Kubrick rejected. So it turns out that over 18 months, uh, Arthur C. Clarke wrote this novel like five or six times. So finally, uh, in 72, I think it was, he released a book called The Lost World of 2001, which is a little bit of backstory, and then whole chapters that never got published. It's as if, you know, all the stuff that ends up in the gutter when you're working on a writing project, 
he puts it all in a book. And it's actually a wonderful story. It's a really cool alternate universe version of what 2001 is about. And uh, so, so I've been reading that. And the, the thing that really freaks me out about it is I noticed uh, yesterday was Ted Nelson's birthday. Ted Nelson gives us Hypermedia, the hyperlink from 1960s. And he, he published a book in 74 in which he talks about a thing called intertwingled, um, where everything is sort of interrelated in weird ways. And he cites as an example of how Hypermedia could be so valuable, he cites Arthur C. Clarke's book, Lost Worlds of 2001. He said, you could publish all of them in a Hypermedia format. This was the 70s, so that seemed odd yeah. to everyone. So that you could actually pick which thread of the of the story that you wanted to follow and see where that ended up. And so that though both of those just came together in the last 24 hours, kind of like blew my mind a little bit. I like the word twingling. That's the word that I don't use a lot. And and the web is full of 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 twingling, yeah. tw you know, yeah. going on. But I don't think there's yeah. enough intentional, thoughtful, meaningful twingling that people do as part mm -hmm. of strategies. But there's a lot of it that's happened out there, and it's kind of everywhere, huh? Yeah, I really, I really um, admire Nelson's way of creating new words like hypermedia, hyperlink, hyperdata did not exist until the 60s until he invents them. And intertwingled is a word he creates. He creates these words that are like such compact little concepts that sort of makes you, huh, that's right. It, it said inter, interconnected or in, in, uh, intertwined, right? Uh, and that's where he comes up with this intertwingularity uh, idea. And I love that, yeah, when you hear it, it's like, yes, there's that exists everywhere. You know, he's anti-hierarchy and all these other things. So this is all how things are just interrelated in weird ways, twisted and intermingled and all these other things. And then you realize, ah, oh, like I just had one, which is this mm -hmm. book I'm reading and his book, because I was rereading his book every... June 17th in my house is Ted Nelson Day. So Ted, on Ted Nelson Day, you get out Ted Nelson's book, uh, Computer Lib and Dream, uh, Machine Dreams, and read through this, this book. And so that's what I was doing yesterday. And I found that intertwingled bit right there. Right does, there. A, does a whole family practice this? No. It's more of a no. this particular person follows it. Okay. Yeah. Last night, my son, because Nelson's intertwingled book is this huge, like 17 by 11, <laughs> handwritten and hand typed book. It was oh, yeah. inspired by the uh, uh, by the New Earth catalog. But anyway, um, it's this giant thing. And then, so my son was like, says, Hey, what's that? What's that, old man? I said, Yeah, that's this, you know, Ted Nelson. Oh, yeah, you've talked about that, Ted Nelson. Thank you. <laughs> that's That's as far as I. My family gets involved. Right That's it. I always get really curious. Um, one of my favorite thought experiments is uh, the internet archaeologist. So, like a hundred years from now, what will the internet archaeologist look back and say? And, I love um, that. And it's just like there's so many different layers they would find. Yeah, and the yeah. the thing about archaeology is you you're always looking at things with your current frame of reference. So yeah. it forces you to predict what the future is like. And then they yeah. are projecting it onto the past. So you get to like yeah. do this intertwingled analysis of history and the present. But there's so many roads not not traveled, like like all of these things uh, from Todd Nelson um, and other kinds of um, ideas yeah. from over the years. And like they could have gone yeah. like 
that could have been Rome, that could have been Athens, like it just, yeah. all these different things. And it's really interesting to think about, like what will they come back and say like, oh, it was all great until that thing happened and then it was all bad, like yeah. with the benefit of the future. The biggest concern I have, and I've actually expressed this to a couple of different people, is that the history we're creating is really technologically dependent. Power, mm -hmm. format, computers, it's not like the ruins of Rome, which were physical things that we can dig up. And I'm yeah. very, very conscious that a lot of important things are going to be lost forever. And now, of course, we lose that with books like printed materials, paper, and, and other things, and even wood, we've lost an awful lot. But I'm super aware of how much we're creating now that might not, that might not be usable in any way. Mm. I think I think a, a certain version that's always existed, like you said, wood, rock, paper, mm -hmm. you know, crumb, there's there's things my my daughter's doing. She's got an internship for the summer at a Japanese museum in San Francisco, and she's archiving uh, World War Two Japanese historical documents. She's digitizing and then they're using uh, Omeka to archive it. So Omeka is like WordPress, but for archival yeah. work, if you've never seen it, but she's processing american printed memos about the relationship between japan and china and like what got kept and what didn't and what was cared for and filed properly and what wasn't and like it's interesting what gets lost in the cracks of, of these these processes but militarily like i would say has both sides is you bomb the hell out of something and burn something and it's all gone but then you also have to file a memo or report for every all these other activities so you also have a record too so yeah. yeah i i mean i think with the internet i'm curious to see i mean uh we had a have a friend at the uh um that's doing the tw twitter archives at the you know um that was doing part of that and they gave up on that project cuz there was so much rot in in all of that like that yeah. they're they just kind of threw up their hands like everything we know about like our digital archive you know archiving all of this it, we can't do it because there's so much rot in in these links yeah. like what do we do and yeah. i agree that it's gonna be i'm curious what our legacy is gonna be yeah uh you know at the same time that tim berners lee was trying to figure out what the World Wide web would look like in the in the mid 80s uh wendy hall dame wendy hall it's sim uh uh, uh had already created a thing for museum archiving called the microcosm, which was all hypermedia, hyperlinked photos and text and all these other kinds of things. It was a self-contained system. It still depended on the computer operating system and power, but it wasn't remotely linked. So um, I, I think uh, uh, Hall is particularly, uh, you know, positioned. She was, I think she was also a mathematician or something, but she was hired to create the Mountbatten archives similar to this idea that your daughter's working on. Um, so I think uh, she and several other people are particularly uh, skilled at figuring out what the archival implications are, but I just don't know that we're actively pursuing them. And Rod is a perfect example. I mean, you, you try the Wayback Machine and other things to try to help with some of that, but uh, there's an awful lot lost. I know Ted Nelson's, most of Ted Nelson's writing and thinking he literally has stored on hard disks in his house. He has boxes of hard disks in his house. And it worries me to no end 
that we will lose all of this material uh, if it's not archived and cataloged uh, properly. Um, he has a foundation that he's talked about uh, putting something together on, but I don't know the status of it. And it's happened to other characters too, um, in, in, you know, in the past. So it's not just, you know, internet or information related, but, but this project yeah. that your daughter's working on is super important. But then also I would say the information overload, I think about this with my email. So like, mm. you know, I keep backups of my Gmail, which I've had since 2005. I download those archives. I do. And there's just so much crap in there. I mean, and I have this problem with yeah. photos too. Like I have so many photos, like what do, what actually matters, you know, and it's interesting to look at it over time. Every year, some things matter less, some things matter more because they're older. And then what ultimately, you know, I, I think about this with Audrey and, and I, you know, about like, what, what do you pass on to your kids? What's your legacy? And mm -hmm. she did, she just, her book's coming out in, in August and she went and spent time at Harvard in uh, BF Skinner's archives. And so BF Skinner, you know, ed tech, um, education, technology, kind of pioneer, behavioral sciences, stuff like that. But like what's in his archives, you know, like people got had to choose and like put put this stuff mm -hmm. in these boxes yeah. and, the, and what letters and what photos and what things do you keep? And some of them are super mundane and super boring, but yeah. then some are super interesting. And so like, what do you keep? Do you keep it all? You know, how do you organize it? And I know like archive, archival people know a little bit more about this than I do, but yeah. I just feel like there's just going to be so much information. It's not just about the internet changing and they're being rot. It's like, what's valuable and what's meaningful and what can you actually experience once this person's gone or this organization or entity's gone? So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's also another component of it too, which uh, just occurred to me as we were talking, like the internet has, has gone from being about information cataloging, which is where a lot of these early ideas started to all of these transactions that are happening. Like that's what a lot of these APIs are doing. Like they're not even leaving like, a record of what you might archive. It's like, you know, Aiden ordered a pizza and it showed up or uh, like he did a run and now it's recorded somewhere. Um, and those things like end up as information that we emit, but the, those events between people, all these touches we're having with each other's online identities, um, I don't know how those show up in the record. Like, how do you remember, how do you remember those kinds of things? Um, yeah, so that's yeah, really interesting. You know, if you really think about going back to the archaeological stuff, right, is most of the things that we the archaeologists spend time on are the detritus of our lives, right? The midden heaps, the the broken glasses and the and pottery and uh, all the you know the 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 cow barn and all these other things, right? So I think a lot of the you know, we may have kind of come full circle. Like I was super worried. Now we're talking about information overload. Now we're talking about selecting. And and it turns out, I guess, it is going to be the people of the future who will decide. They will look at whatever it is we leave behind and probably derive wild notions of what these what these devices were like and what they were for. And um, that is a really fascinating idea is to kind of like leap ahead and then look back. Like, you know, what is it? What are they going to think? And uh, I'm sure there's been lots of writing on that, but that's that's really kind of got archaeologists going through your crypt, and there's just very little things. So it's like it's very intriguing to try to stitch together what happened, who is yeah. this person. Mm -hmm. But then, like Who's in the future, it? they're going to look back and they're like, 
another selfie of yourself? Like, Jeez, yeah. <laughs> on this one day. Like, These people. Yeah. 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 Or, or, you know, like in my case, there aren't very many pictures and it's like, this person must have really been disfigured because everyone else takes pictures of themselves. <laughs> you know, all these things, right? Yeah, that, that's actually a lot of fun. I, I like that idea. I, you know, I know, uh, you know, Mel Conway had, had mentioned arch, uh, software archaeology. He was working mm -hmm. on old code that he wrote long ago. He said, it's like, it's like an archaeological dig. You kind of like dig around and you find, oh, look, there's some C++ code there. And then like, and you dig a little bit further. Oh, there's some assembly that was written. So we'll also have those things, right? So some of those archaeologists might just be software archaeologists, right? All mm. of the services, all of the bolt-ons, all of the bug fixes. Like, look at this. Look at the the primitive medical tools they were using to keep their software mm. alive, kind of thing. Right? Right. Yeah. Well, they they put Optic in the uh, in the code vault. Uh, the cool. GitHub threw us in there a couple months there ago. There you go. And I told my, my sister, uh, I told my sister about it and she was like, oh, cool. What, could, what else can we use that for? Because there's no way it's going to like be runnable in a hundred right. years. That's right. And I was like, yeah, they're, they're going to miss like one dependency and it, and it won't work. Um, yeah. And she's like, no, no, not because that. He's like, because computers will lead to the end of the world and uh, we won't ever want to bring them back. So what can we use this film for? I was like, I can yeah. build like ropes out of it or shirts or yeah, right. tablecloth yeah. maybe. Like, <laughs> yeah. Wasn't even thinking about how to run it. She was like, "What can we use the physical medium for?" And I, <laughs> that's right. That's really good. It's like, can we burn books to stay alive? Right. I'm sure glad they kept all these books. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the books we have could just be the ones that were heaviest, so people burned the other ones first. There's yeah. These little natural filters uh, that lead to what gets remembered. Yeah, that's what that no, uh, the book, houses. the day after tomorrow or something, right? Which was the one about how. Like there's super cold attacks New York or something, and they get mm. there's a bunch of bunch of people who get uh, trapped in a, a library, and they're trying to figure out how to keep warm, and they're arguing about which books to burn and not to burn. And some guy says, "Hey, there's a whole bunch of legal text here. These will burn really well." <laughs> <laughs> so it's yeah, like what are the heavy ones? What are the thick ones? Yeah, yeah. All about what matters and what's what's a priority to us. I love the the GitHub thing that it's. It's in an Arctic vault, like is yeah. how they list it. It's like it's, yeah. you know, what does that mm -hmm. conjure in your imagination as far as like? Because I know API Evangelist is in there. freezing cold, you know. <laughs> People shouting Wait, through right. through through headphones that they can't, you know, masks they can't Mike, see each other. Mike, Mike's gonna be in there in twenty years. He's gonna be holding up one that's API Evangelist and one that's Optic, and he's gonna be choosing which one to burn first. And that's what we'll I, find out I'll tell you really what like I will be. I will be the old man that's in there, like in in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I will be there telling you, choose wisely. <laughs> I'll have, I've been here for five hundred years waiting for you to come. Right, that's right. So my, I mean, my, you know, bring this back home to to Mike Amundsen is, you know, so my introduction to computing is. My stepdad at, in the early 80s was uh, worked at the Munson Scott base in, in Antarctica. Really? And he um, he was a radio operator was what he did. Yeah. So he uh, and he was down there for two seasons and he came back and my mom hooked up with him. And but he had brought back. So he was wandering around and he had found one of the older bases, which had snow piled up. 
And he like dug down, found the hatch, opened it up and went in. And there was all this old equipment, tube equipment. And he, cause he was on a cargo ship is what he worked on. And he yeah. hauled all this back to Oregon. And then I got to play with it and like figure it out. And then he saw like, I liked electronics and then he bought a computer like a Timex Sinclair and then a Commodore 64 for me. And I immediately took them apart and broke all that, you know, stuff. That, <laughs> that was probably not the best way intro to computing. It was like teaching a kid to mess around stuff, but tying it all together, Amundsen, Scott, wow. Bay, Arctic, you know, yeah. there's a, that was you know, and then I, Put away hardware and went to software. So that that that's really amazing. I, I'm just going to speculate. I'm going to guess your your it was your stepdad was probably finding material from 1957, the geophysical year. There was this whole effort of all the nations of the uh, you know uh, of the world to have scientific exploration of the Antarctic in in that year, and that's when they would have brought a lot of um tube based radio equipment and other things down there before that there wouldn't have been much but there was there were tons of things and it's so cold there that's one of the reasons i think they're doing it in the arctic so cold there that um there's no rot wood that was yeah. buried wood that was brought to the antarctic uh, uh in like the the 20s teens 100 years ago is still there in its same condition and by the way so are the bodies that were buried there. They're in their same yeah. condition. So that's really, I never even knew this about, about this. This is another connection that we have, isn't it? Yeah. And they, that's and the, cool. I think it was that, that time period. Cause he said yeah. this wave he was part of, which was seventies and eighties had yeah. literally built on top of the old base yeah. and no one cared about the old equipment or anything. And people would talk about, it, but he went and, and like found it. And oh, so yeah, yeah. It's like, these geological layers that, you know, yeah. scientific research that occurs down there. So that's mm -hmm. incredible. I, th I think I heard that. I think it was the Scott base, not the Amundsen base, but somebody had left like port wine or whiskey or something there. Wow. And uh, it was, it was still, apparently it was still drinkable uh, after like a wow. hundred years. Any whiskey, any whiskey can be drank. It just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Whether or not it was any good, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, that they found they found all sorts of stuff. Yeah, yeah. cool. All right, Mike, so, is the base named after your family? I I don't I've never yeah. heard this part of your so, life. So it actually uh, is okay. Uh, yeah, Roald Amundsen. Uh, they would say Amundsen if they were in Norway. Uh, was the first to step foot at the South Pole, at the actual South Pole. Uh, it turns out he was in a race with uh, Falcon Scott. Scott and his crew died uh, after they had reached the pole about two weeks after uh, Amundsen did, they died on the way back. So uh, they actually, for lots of reasons, uh, Scott is usually much more famous. It's a much more romantic story than uh, Amundsen was kind of dull and boring. But yeah, so Amundsen, he did all sorts of odd things. He was an explorer type. So he was the first to set foot on the South Pole, the first to fly over the North Pole in a dirigible in an airplane. He had several other things. The first to circumnavigate the northern uh, water. So he went through Norway and Russia and, and Siberia and Alaska and North America. He did the Northwest Passage before it was, uh, before it was hip to do. So yeah, so that, that's family. It, it's it's a, not a direct line family for me. He was like an uncle or something like that. And he was never actually uh, 
formally married, so it's more of like a um, there's some cousiny bits that that lead to, lead to me. But yeah, I've I've visited his home. His home is a is now a museum, but I got a sort of a private tour of his home from outside of Oslo. He was quite a character. Uh, he snuck out of town on this mission to the South Pole because he owed so, owed so many people money. That was the startup business back then. He would have to raise tons and tons of money and then they would do scientific exploration and then they, like you would get the, the benefits of all the exploration, the, the mineral rights, the land rights, the information, mm -hmm. the storytelling. And he came back and told stories. He wrote books and told stories about his adventures to try to earn up enough money to pay everyone off so he could do it again. Yeah, he left his brother hanging with tens of thousands in debt, which would have been a lot of money 100 years ago, uh, as he split and lied to his crew, told his crew he's going north to the North Pole. But then he heard that somebody had already reached there first, so he's pissed. So he changed his plans quietly and planned to r run for the south and uh, didn't tell his crew until they were like uh, hundreds of miles offshore. And he said, if you want to change your mind now, it's not going to be a one year trip. It's going to be a two year trip. You want to change your mind if nobody's up for it you can get off now you wuss <laughs> and they were all like no sir we're with you all the way so that was it it was a that's a magical story my goodness oh, there's and so then many, yeah like so 50, 50 years later they leave a electronic there that somehow ends up in kin's house in oregon and then yes uh yeah goodness it is it's it's a great so, that's so, intertwingled that's intertwingled right so what you're telling me, Mike, is that you're going to turn the page in this Arthur Clarke book, and the next chapter that was removed is this exact story you told me, with <laughs> the three lives cloud atlasing into each other, getting all inter intertwingled. That that's right. You know, uh, there is actually, I think it's on Mars. I think it's on Mars, or, or one of the one of the inner planets. It might even be Venus. That there is an Amundsen uh, uh, plane. Uh, hmm. The named after Roald Amundsen, and you know, well, you own a lot more real estate, a lot more real yeah, estate yeah. than I do. My goodness, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of. Oh, Lanny got up there. <laughs> Unloading, it's kind of tough, you know, but it's for the future. It's it's an investment. I'm just holding on to it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so that it's it's kind of come up. I think it's come up in a Clark book that you know he mentions the Amundsen, Amundsen crater or something like that. I'd have to look it up, but yeah. Huh. Yeah, that's uh, the Cloud Atlas thing. That's a good one. It'll just it'll just flip. Yeah. yeah, I'm still discovering how I'm part of this triangle, but I'm sure it'll become apparent in the next couple of years. Yes. Yeah. Oh, we'll have to we'll talk find, to Tom we'll Hanks. Find yeah, we'll find the connection. We will. We will. Tom Hanks will explain it all to us at some point. <laughs> the intertwingularity <laughs> is coming, whether you like it or not. I mean, it, it happens. So there's no Absolutely. stopping it. Yeah, it's one of those things where you you could imagine this is another thought experiment. Uh, sorry to just be dropping them on us this whole time, but you could imagine that like you have a story like this with a lot of people that you know, but it's only when you spend a lot of time together do you find these coincidences. Um, so I wonder how many people we know in our lives that it's something even closer than that story, uh, or even more bizarre, more interesting, but because we don't talk to them for hundreds of hours over the course of a decade, it never comes up. Yeah, I love it. that. That is, is such a, a, a great thing that we, our brains have, right? Is like, we will actually even search out those connectors. 
we'll we'll talk to each other and and even like look oh is that close is that is yeah that's a connection yeah that's good okay okay we're, we we need to turn right like that's just amazing. meaning making yeah yeah meaning making that's very good that's very good i've not heard that before yeah that's cool but it's it's interesting how i'm i wanna i don't know i this came up with a talk with lorinda earlier this week and it's come up a couple times is like how much of the, our last decade of this API story we've been telling is, is how much of it is the story versus like the next decade, you know, decade. And I was, you know, alluding to like, I know for Mike and Lorinda and I, like we've been on this journey for like a decade. Like we feel like we've yeah. traveled, we, we've got lots of stories under our belts, but I really feel like that we're just getting started. Like there's actually the, the impact that we're going to make is going to be much greater and bigger and, and, and the scope is coming up and I don't know what that looks like or what that is. And I could be totally full of crap and just, uh, <laughs> you know, making this up, but, uh, you know, I'm curious how this, uh, the stories will get told and how the history of this gets laid down and what, what is left, you know, yeah. I know, I think you and I have talked about this several times, but like, what do we produce that makes an impact, makes a change, but then sticks around, you know, and yeah. books and talk. I think books are good at sticking around to a certain degree. Um, videos, I guess, to a certain degree, you know, but mm -hmm. after, you know, like I look back, like all the API strat videos are gone, you know, yeah. strategy and practice. Those yeah. got like that, that was a YouTube channel that got caught up in the Red Hat three scale acquisition and then the IBM acquisition. And then it's just gone. Like we can't find it and we don't know where the videos are. So like yeah. what, what sticks, what doesn't stick. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm starting to get thoughtful about this. Like, what do I do? That's going to stick because I, I somewhat want to re be remembered. I mean, I'm not totally egomaniac crazy about it, right. but you know, there's a little piece of me. I'm like, Oh, I'm, I worked real hard. I would like to be remembered for this or that, you know, I made an impact, but like, how do you, can you consciously make something stick or is it just yeah. kind of the natural process that decides, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it, it's a bit of, it's, it's sort of a variation of the, uh, you know, the winner writes the history, like what survives, like who's in charge when we decide to, to, you know, write this part of the story, right. When we become, you know, storytellers, I, I was just, you know, we've got, um, the API specification conference coming up. So I decided to submit some materials. And the two things I submitted were actually panel talks. And there are panel talks. One is on HAL and the HAL forms format. HAL is 10 years old now, right? Oh. We're, it's a we're a decade on with HAL, right? And actually the other one was, was the ALP spec, which is also from 2011. So that's a long time. Like, what what's you know what sticks and what doesn't and what will what how will it affect things in the future and there are more things like that I mean, they're just the ones that i have a connection to but it's made me do the same thing you you're talking about which is like well what what happens 10 years from now like what's what's that going to be like so i agree with you um what can you influence and what is just some of it's random some of it is just who happens to be holding the levers at a particular time, who knows? Whoever the archaeologist is and what she's doing and what they're looking for, who knows? Yeah, well, I think there's there's two kinds of things back to what we were talking about before that like that one can be persisted in. There's like your content is still remembered or your project is still remembered. And then there's like the little nudges. 
And that's like the subconscious stuff that might not have your name on it, but like it's the influence you had. Like I remember when Dev and I were first starting Optic, we were like not confident that we should like throw out a lot of the past. And like you were just like be in those calls with us. I remember we were in those like tiny rooms together and you were like, no, that's good. Like this is important. Keep going. <laughs> and like you were yeah. just like, yeah, like it's like it took 40 minutes out of your out of each month of yours. But that like really put us on a trajectory. And um, I think that that kind of nudging, like, you know, your name isn't on the repo and we could certainly <laughs> put it there if you want us to. But, um, you know, you, you influenced us in, in a huge degree. Um, and I feel like, you know, both you and Ken have done that for so many other people in the space, whether it's yeah. a team at a company that now works differently because of something you guys wrote or taught them. You know, that's the whole point of the content anyway. Like, like even if you say my, my blog post is still read 100 years later, it's being read because people are using it or finding it useful in their own lives. And I feel like that impact is hard to quantify, but that's always going to be like 10,000 times bigger than just my, my website is still here and all the backlinks work. <laughs> that's, you know, that, that's actually, that's a really, really good point. It's the, the stuff that sticks is not the necessarily the stuff that we've created, but it's the stuff that others have created because of our connection. Right. Um, like, I, like I just, I just wrote, you know, uh, some notes yesterday, hyperlink this, that idea that Ted had in 1963 hyperlink has changed the world for so many hundreds of millions of people. Now they don't say Ted Nelson's hyperlink. They say hyperlink mm -hmm. or hypermedia, yeah. whatever. And, and even to the point of like people who don't have any idea how important it is. Um, Arthur C. Clarke was the first to actually work out the math of geostationary satellites. Like geostationary satellites are why we have communications, why you and I are talking right now, because those satellites hover over the same spot of the planet every day. And nobody calls them, you know, Clark orbits or anything like that. But it's though it, it's those elements or the things that people pick up from stories that Ken tells, you know, the same messaging over and over again. I mean, Ken, your original API, what was the what was the name of that first self-published text that you wrote? API design or something like that. I mean, I still see quotes from that material, you know, and that's I remember, and it's still out. That's there. more than ten years ago, right? That's more than ten years ago, and yeah, I, think I think you're you're right. Yeah, those types of influence. I mean, that's really what matters to me the most, and I that actually like connect with me. Like, there's a piece of my ego. I'm not gonna lie, where I, you know, if someone cites my name or my name's on something, I, I feel good. For sure but like it's the influence ones that and then someone ran with it in a different way and then they acknowledge you know me that always feels the best and i don't need like attribution and name this is by from ken but i was trying to articulate that to a, a youngin the other day you know uh, on my team or on another team at postman and trying to articulate like he had come up with a really good idea that's being emulated by other teams without citation or attribution and he was kind of pissed and i was just like no like you just gotta like that's like what you did is interesting and and powerful and people are moving fast and they don't always have the time to like compliment or cite you know acknowledge where it came from and but it's yours it's got your fingerprints all mm -hmm. over it enjoy that yep. that's all that's the most you can ask for and and when i see things that i know i'm like oh you know, like that's my wording. I know because I have a <laughs> yeah. way of writing and saying certain things. Yeah. And then I've had like 
you know, like James Higginbotham came to me one time and was like, hey, I just read a government report coming out. Like, did you have, write that? I'm like, no, I didn't. And they're like, well, read this. And it was like, you know, it's like the API journey and this, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, that's totally me. Like someone read my work <laughs> and like I can tell when, you know, that's that's API, blah, 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 that I created, yep. you know. And so I love that, you know, even if it doesn't yeah. cite me because that that just, you know, I think that's how the world works in, in the most magical ways in my book. But Yeah. You, you know, can I just check to make sure it's business of APIs. You can still find it on Amazon and oh its publication date is 2011, 10 years ago. Oh, wow. God. I need April 10, that. April of 2011. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. Wow. yeah, and that stuff, stuff from that book, um, I, I recognize, uh, uh, you know, several times, same, same experience, like, oh, I, I've, I've read that before. That's, mm. that's, uh, so, so that's kind of goes back to what you were saying, Aiden, which is the idea that it's not necessarily the artifacts that I leave around, it's the artifacts that others create because of our connection. You know, and I've yeah. always talked before, connection is so important. So I think that's a really mm. cool idea. Yeah, it's what it, I mean. Is what makes it a community and not just a bunch of people doing their own thing. Uh, so yeah, there's a there's something they talk about in Hollywood a lot. It's like you can be um, you be you be uh, famous or rich basically, because uh, <laughs> like the producers make way more money than the celebrities, and mm -hmm. this it's because the celebrities are willing to give up something mm -hmm. to get that. And it's yeah. I think in our in our space, it's like you can be like famous or influential maybe i think those are like have some polarity to them um not all the time but they definitely do mm -hmm. a little bit because it's very hard to uh like to help others or to be helped by others if like you're famous or revered or something whatever the right word is like people don't always open up or take influence in the same way that they could otherwise they they, they weight your ideas too heavily because you're you're yep. this person that's well known so I think like yep. you, people can break through that. Like it's not a, a hard, fast rule, but they're on the same spectrum. And some of the most influential people in my life, you won't find them on Google if you search for them. Uh, but right. they've had a huge impact on me. And it's really interesting how those things like, you know, sometimes are in polarity with each other. That's a good idea. That's, that's also a really, a really, really good point. Uh, we, we, we make, every, we all make choices all the time. Uh, and uh, it's also a, it's also a privilege thing, right? Like the ability to be able to be to be given voice, to actually have a microphone, to actually be on stage is just another part of that whole story. Who's on stage and who's not? Who's given a chance to publish and who isn't? And all these things. So it's a constant process of continuing, continuing to figure out, you know who you can influence and how you can influence them and who writes the history, who picks out the things, right? So I mentioned, you know, Dame Wendy Hall. We all know about Sir Tim Berners-Lee, but not everybody knows that Dame Wendy Hall actually had a fully working system, even when Tim was just working on one computer <laughs> with a browser, right? And don't, they don't talk about that because Wendy Hall is sort of like what you were saying, um, she's not famous. Uh, but she did all this work very, very early on in the process and, and proved that it was possible in ways did that Tim others had not at the time. Had Tim Berners-Lee uh, seen her work? Like, did it influence him? Um, I don't think so. I think they were working pretty independent. Uh, uh, Hall tells a story that they met up at a sort of a, one of these 
computer events in the US, like these early sort of like, you know, build your own kind of computer events in the US, and that she had noticed that Berners-Lee and, and, and somebody else uh, were there, uh, and that his system was so much less functional than what Microcosm was. Microcosm was already sort of a product that was saleable. So I, I think they hadn't really spoken to each other in any other kind of way, but they were sort of working from the same source material, which was Ted Nelson and Doug Engelbart. Uh, they were working from the same source material, but they did it in very different ways. It's sort of like so many other inventions on, on uh, various ends of things. Um, people are influenced and then they go off in their tangents and some become famous and some don't. And microcosm is not a system that people talk about anymore. I don't know if it's still running at all or not. Yeah. See, I'm really trying to find these sources now. Like, I mean, for my breaking changes, I'm really trying to, I'm starting with yeah. my core Rolodex of people that I know, Mike and everybody, but it, I'm really trying to do a lot more reading, a lot more scratching what I find on the web, but I want to even go beyond. I want to start looking in academic circles and really find the, the, the most interesting, but big problems that are being touched or being, you know, having APIs applied to. And then those people who aren't necessarily out on the, the conference circuit and doing the dog and pony show that we're, we're so good at and find yeah, those, yeah. And bring those people out and let them and give them some voice, but, and then do that, mm -hmm. you know, in a, in a, a diverse way, but also international because I'm yeah. very mindful that us in North America are really good at dominating the conversation. And so I'm I'm looking in South America, I'm look, looking in, in Asia and Southeast Asia, and it's just really interesting to try to think about like how what signals do I tune into to find these people, find these conversations. It's not like oh I can just subscribe to an RSS feed or follow someone on Twitter and then boom here it goes. You got to do a lot more work to find this. And so if you guys have ideas and thoughts of where I should be looking, let me know. Sure. I mean, you're right in the sense that one of the things I notice is that I have to, I have to make an effort very often. I can often name the same people I see constantly over and over again, but I have to work harder to come up with names of people that I've met who are very, very creative, but I haven't had a chance to, you know, to get to know well or interact with a lot. So I have to sort of do a little extra mental work. So I I, uh, I appreciate that idea quite a bit, and I'm sure there are, there are things like that we can all we can all think of. Um, one of the people who's been a really good source for that kind of discovery for me has been Matt McClarty at MuleSoft. Oh yeah. You know, Matt and I do the uh, Unplugged podcast, the APIs Unplugged podcast. Mm -hmm. Matt has got some amazing connections to people all over the world. Um, I, uh, here's an example. I you know I've I've got this. Uh, um, uh, Farah Ashiru Jutubo from Africa, who is running this startup uh, called, uh, I think it's called Okra. In, uh, she's building an API platform uh, for uh, economic, for fi you know, fintechs in, in Africa in several countries. I can't remember if she's in, um, in Nairobi or somewhere else. I'm embarrassed. But he's a great connection. We had a great conversation with the startup community and the API community on an entirely different continent that I don't spend a lot of time interacting with. So uh, Matt's a really good source for some of those as well.
Yeah, he's always been really good at that. Like, I mean, yeah. the the old API Academy days, he was definitely yeah. that that person. You know, I mean, you guys were doing the more physical in person version, but he him his networking capabilities are pretty impressive. Yeah, he's definitely. yeah, he's a great connector. He's a great glue. You know, a link between others, and he's not only is he good at it, he enjoys it, and. Uh, he gets other people connected in, in other ways. He's super generous. I've, I've had a great experience working with Matt. It's been a privilege. Yeah. Well, and I think for me, the stories that I'm looking for are, you know, now that that folks are waking up to APIs in, in across many industries, like what aren't the, the stories we've been telling for the last decade, you know, at the enterprise organizations who are yeah. in part of the world, you know, that that really haven't seen the light of day when it comes to the, the tech spotlight. And then, as you described, you know, in these these emerging markets and and realms of you know pockets of the world that don't again don't get the tech crunch and the regular spotlight yeah. and don't have the privilege that that like people like I do and being in the Bay Area and stuff like that. So like trying to really get at those people and let them know that people want to hear these stories and are interested oh, yeah. and that their their story is important and matters and is relevant and. And it doesn't have to be like a positive, feel good, happy API success story. Like, I mean, I know, you know, Aiden's company is really good at, you know, mapping out like, well, it's just the reality on the ground within your company. And like, what is that history? How did you get here? And trying to teach people that sometimes those are the more interesting stories, the things that you oh, struggle yeah. with, the things that you, you find challenging in your day. It's not just the, the happy shiny you, you know everything is awesome you know api story it's it's actually like this is hard and how do we manage change and how do we you know keep up with the velocity of the world around us all of that so so yeah keep that in mind as as you guys explore your worlds i would love to just yeah. uh, keep finding those stories and engaging with those folks but and also for this show, you know, for API storytelling, we yeah, that wellness world. So. Yeah. yeah, gotta get a little more interest in than the, just us three, right? You spread this out, spread this around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very cool. It is yeah. fun to do What's some some solo every once in a while with you guys, though. Um, and I, well, I, I enjoy more. I enjoy talking with you a lot. Yeah, yeah. I can't agree more that like bringing more voices into this is is going to be really important. Um, I think there are. I think like a leading indicator to like the next 10 years of the API space will be when the stories we're telling start to change and we start to see new sets of problems and new things to do right. And, you know, one of the things I, I've experienced uh, over the last couple of weeks doing a lot of customer calls is so many people want us to tell them exactly how to put the tools together. Like they're looking for a prescriptive workflow. And I know you guys had experience too working with people. And we've intentionally like not given that to them until they can talk through how they currently do things. And we often find out that what they want or what would be ideal is different than the mainstream and it's different than what they thought they wanted when they got there. And I think, um, you know, it's hard because like as a vendor, like the fastest thing is just to be like, do it this way. They say, okay, they have nothing they can say no to and they like it. But I think taking time to slow down and actually listen to what's going on is how things get better. And, um, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be, um, you know, at a conference, it can just be like, you're talking to someone and you hold back saying the thing that's in your head and let them talk a little longer. And there's so much out there. Like there, I think we only understand in the mainstream, like 10% of the stories that matter for the API space. And when we start serving the other 90%, I think, um, a lot of special things are going to happen. Yeah. There's, you know, uh, this sort of ethnography of, of 
of discovery of design, right? They teach designers that good designers don't just uh, design the thing you ask for. They ask you why, you know, and it's like the five whys from the Toyota way and, and all these other things. It's like, this is a, let's drill down further and find out what's really going on. Peel away the onion, find out what's under this and get to what people are really, because I'm not always great at explaining it, right? I, I have this idea in my head, but I can't verbalize it. It's, it's buried in other things other than words. It's buried in feelings and emotions and visuals and stuff. So it's hard for me to explain it. So I need people to ask me why in order to help me reconstruct it in, you know, from other angles and other ways. So that ability to ask people, it isn't just like, I'm going to wait until you're better at, you know, what you want. It's more like, mm -hmm. I'll help you explain it to me rather than just leap at the first thing. And I think that's a fantastic uh, skill. And that's, again, I think part of, it's, it's like the other side of storytelling, right? Is helping other people tell you their story. Tell me mm -hmm. your story, explain it to me. We, you know, we have all these phrases, explain it to me like I'm five years old, all these other kind of things. It's really all about helping people to express themselves, giving them a chance, uh, giving them their voice in this way, I think. And so is coaching and therapy and all these other didactic yeah. methods of helping people yeah. discover what they already know. Yeah, yeah, but, yes, but what, they, what they already know but can't, ex like haven't figured out how to express, right? Well, yeah, and I remember specifically sitting in Colorado at some CA event, I think with you, Mike, and you saying, like some people keep asking me just, how do I, tell me how do I do this so I can just get this API thing done and check the yeah. box. Yeah. And it's like, no, like, you've got to stop and learn how to express yourself. You know, the thing you're doing every day to accomplish your business that you just want to check the box on, there's actually a story, there's actually a reason, there's like how you got there. And I don't think, I mean, I'm always fascinated. These are always the people in the space. I have, I don't have them as much anymore because I'm not doing as much writing storytelling. But when I wrote on my blog, I would always get once a month, someone go, stories don't matter. You know, like you, you talk a lot about storytelling and yep. on your blog and, and you need to stop. You need to just focus. Like, how do I do rest? And I'm like, well, no, there's a story, you know, and, and they'd be like, stories don't matter. And I'm like, those are the people who are like, like they're just damaged in the moment they're you know they're so beat up and tumbled by their daily processes and their daily work in that velocity that you can't like i just got to do this i just got to do this and do and get this done and and then get through this project no like those are the people that need to like step back and and i would aiden's words you know need that therapy and that coaching and like oh your story matters and your story is like actually going to help you here and i think yeah. it's the same people that i've always argued with that like say art doesn't matter you know it's like kids in school don't need to be taught art they need to be taught how to work their job because they're going to spend the rest mm -hmm. of their life working you know and like well wait no actually art's going to make us better in our jobs and make us happier yeah. people and so it's like how do you get those people to stop and slow down and realize storytelling matters you know yep and, and, and give them matters. yes exactly right and let, let give them the space to tell their story. It's another version of psychological safety, right? It's like, I can tell you my story and I don't even know what that story is, damn it, but I'm gonna give it a shot. Just give me a minute, let me try a few shots, you know? Now I can just see all of us around, 12 chairs sitting around, okay, you know, welcome. Hi, my name is Mike, I'm a software architect. I want, been, I want that I, to be the conference, that's what I want. I want an API storytelling-like conference where it's like, 
50 people in a room doing group together and doing groups. Yeah. Cause like even at conferences today, a lot of it is like, here's how you do this one thing. And here's say, yeah. here's what I learned in this process, bringing this other process to this process. And that's great. But, um, you know, I feel like if we want to create these spaces where we influence each other and we combine our ideas, like, you know, why isn't there, why isn't there a place where that melting pot happens and that being interactive versus we all read each other's blog posts and think about them. It's like a completely different dimension. So I hope that we find a way to get into that with like a group of people from all over. Well, there's, there's so a I'm, project. Yeah. I'm going to put it out there again, Mike, because we've done this several times before and with varying degrees of success is I'm going to put it out into the universe. If anybody's got $50,000, they would love to give for me to fly 20 people to some place in the world and to sit down and do this. We'll happily take your money and give you some return on your investment. So, oh yeah, and I, oh, yeah. Mike, and I have, have done this, this exercise several times over the years, and we've mm. managed to to create this in various ways. People giving us money to to meet around the world. So I'm going to put it out there. Yeah, we need some funding for API storytelling session. We'll figure out where and who, but yeah, we'll, if you've got some funds, we'll we produce we'll produce something something of value at the end. Everybody will. Yeah, there you go. That's a there's a project. I love I love this idea. Let me know. Okay. Happy well, hopefully help. one of our our viewers picks up on this, has some 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 extra I, money, and they want to get some. Value. I didn't expect us to end up at the beach, but I guess I'll see you there next. That's <laughs> yeah. Right. There you go. All righty, you two. Well, let's. Uh, I think that's a good place to close it up. Another interesting yeah. storytelling wandering session. I appreciate it. Yep. Um, Very good. And uh, you guys enjoy your weekend. Get outdoors. Do some good reading. Back. And uh, let, uh, I'll let Mike or Aiden go first because I let you come in first. So bye, Aiden. Uh, bye. See you, Aiden. Have a great rest of your weekend. You too. All Take right. care. If the button works, there it goes. Button um, works. Button work got rid of him. He's off and backstage now. I see him there in the <laughs> bank vault. Um, yep. Anyways, good to see you, my friend. As always. Always good to talk with you. Thanks, man. Thanks. Enjoy the weekend. Say hi to your family. Bye-bye. Yeah. righty. Until next time. Bye, Mike. Alrighty. Another one for the books. Um, and we'll see you the next time we gather for API Storytelling. Everyone, enjoy the weekend. Cheers.